We too want to welcome all of you and uh, thank you for your presence today, you at the venue. And uh, we're looking forward to our time together as we look into the Word of God for a message. Uh, I want you to remember the guy in the green. I want to mention him maybe a little later on if I don't forget. <clears throat> well, if you remember, Pastor Rick has been going through um, what does God say about or think about the different things. And we have heard what God says about abortion. What does God say about himself? What does God say about me? What does God say about heaven? And today we're going to look at what does God say about his word? And looking forward to next weekend when Ali is here. And what does God say about his son? I do believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And I do believe that this book that we uh, bring uh, to our bedsides and as we bring into our living rooms and as we bring it into our lives, as we bring it into our churches, I believe this word is without error. The Bible says to Timothy that this Bible is the inspired word of God. I also believe that this Bible, which we call the written word, is also the living word. In fact, they're synonymous. I have just as much awe and respect of this word as I do of Christ was standing in our presence today. Why do we say that? We say that because that's what the Bible says. The Bible says in the first chapter of John, in the beginning was the word. Verse 18 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we're going to hear next week about the living word, which is Christ, but this is the same power this is the written word that became flesh and dwelt among us. So I do believe that as we look at what God says about his word today, we are speaking in the language of his son. This Bible is in the language of his son. And I had to think about as we was listening to some of these songs about the word. The book of John, as it begins that way, is probably the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning was the Word. That's punching through creation. And then on the other side of creation where it says in Genesis, in the beginning was God. There we have the Word that has always been there, alive and present. So we're going to look at the written Word today. And I like what uh, Pastor Bobby said. He says, uh, turn off your iPads, your cell phones, and all those electrical devices and put your tray tables up, fasten your seat belts, and let's jump in and let's take a journey as we look at what God says about his word. So number one, if you have your notes, and by the way, I don't know who put this up here, but thank you. <laughs> this is about my favorite, so take care of that later. <clears throat> so my word is perfect because of its unity. I believe the, that God would say that. My word is perfect because of its unity. I, I believe that this, this one step right here proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that it has a divine origin. I believe this one a lesson right here would prove that this Bible separates us from all the other religions. And why do we say that? The Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 89, in your notes, your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. 
It says another place in the Psalms that, Lord, your word is perfect and your word is proven and your word is tested and tried. This word is perfect in its unity. Now follow me. This is uh, one of my daughter's um, Bibles. We call this a family Bible. And I think it's a great gift to give to your children when they get married. And uh, even though obviously they don't open it very much, but it's nice to have it out on the table to let people know when they come in, this is the Word of God. This is what you stand for. Now, as I think about the unity of this Bible from the Genesis to the Revelation, it gets exciting. Why do we say that? Because every sentence and every word and every phrase in here is perfection and it has total unity. 66 books in this Bible, perfect in union. 1,189 chapters in this Bible and it's perfection in its unity. 30,330 verses in this Bible, there is perfection in its unity. 743,746 words in the English language in this Bible, and there is perfection in its unity. And it has unity in spite of being written by 40 different people. Now, you can't get two people to agree and write a book on any subject on the planet today. I don't care if you're talking about English or history or mathematics or science, it's pretty hard to get two people on the same page to agree on anything. This book, divinely inspired, Bible says that it moved by the Holy Ghost in the lives of men as they penned them. This book has 40 different authors. And yet it remains perfect in its unity in spite of 40 different locations it was written for. In spite of this book being written over a span of 1,600 years. You can't calculate that. These 40 different authors, very few of them ever met each other, written over a span of 1,600 years, started 3,500 years ago, went up to the time of Christ, and a few years beyond, and is perfect in its unity. Now, how do you get a fisherman and a farmer and a butler and an IRS tax agent and a prophet and a priest and a king and a queen? How do you get them to all agree on the same subject? It's divinely inspired. And when you have all these 40 authors, all these different occupations, all these different locations, and you bring it and it is perfect in its unity, and it tells the story of creation, corruption, salvation, justification, sanctification, propitiation, justification, I already mentioned it, glorification, <laughs> all the Asians, and whatever it is, and it's perfection in its unity. That gets me excited. And if you talk to any math professor, he says you can't hardly calculate that one. It's like a one followed by a bunch of Google zeros or whatever. Folks, it's divinely inspired and it is perfect in its unity. Last night a young man came up to me and an agnostic and doesn't really believe the word and, and he said, you know what? I, he says, I can't refute those numbers. You can't do it. This Bible is perfect in its unity and actually when you think about that, you can go to the Library of Congress and you can walk down 833 miles of shelves 
And you're gonna see in there 2.5 million books, two and a half billion words, and it's all dead and dry. There's no life in any book, none. Bible says in Hebrews that this book is alive and spiritual. It is perfect in its unity. And I love that one. When I think about what our God has done in this Bible, it is supernatural, internal consistency, and it's perfection in its unity. And I think he would also say today that my Bible is perfect in its indestructibility. For 3,500 years, written over a span of 1,600 years, beginning 3,500 years ago, the demonic forces of darkness have done everything they can to destroy this Bible. Satan hates this Bible. The demon forces of the planet hate this Bible. There's people that'll do everything they can. There's nations today that you'll be slaughtered and killed if you have this written word of God in your presence. But our Bibles say in 1 Peter 1.25, the word of the Lord will stand forever. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 40, maybe verse 8, it says, my, the heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will stand forever. This Bible will always be around. And better than that, when we go on into eternity, we get to enjoy this Bible throughout all of eternity. In 303 AD, the emperor Diocletian, he was a very wicked man, and he says that I am going to make sure that this Bible is extinct. Then there came a day he thought it was. He put a monument out in the middle of his town square, and he says the Bible is now extinct. In other words, it's off the face of the earth. Some years later, when uh, Constantine came along and somebody in that same town square says, well, let's see if there's any of these extinct Bibles around. I will give this great reward if you can bring and find one of these extinct Bibles within an hour, 60 of them. Just in that little village. I think about the atheist Voltaire in the late part of the 17th century, this wicked man says that the Bible will be extinct by the end of the 18th century on this planet. Voltaire is gone, the century is gone, and his house is being used today by the Geneva Bible Society to print thousands and thousands of Bibles. You're not gonna take the Bible off the face of the earth. It will always be here. I think about the, the butcher, Stalin, the killer of tens of millions of people. He says, no longer is the Bible going to ever come into Russia. Russia will be a country with no Bibles. Stalin is gone. The law is gone. But there's Bibles pouring into Russia. In fact, the Russian Bible Society, I Googled it this morning, there's a lot of Bibles in Russia. My word is perfect because of its indestructibility. And I had to think about how sad it is today there's men and women today still doing everything they can trying to destroy this inspired word of God. I also believe that God would say that my word is perfect because of its accuracy. Psalm 34, 33, 4 says, for the word of the Lord is right and true. In fact, he says one place in John, he says my word, maybe chapter 10, my word cannot be shoved aside. Because my word is 
tested and it is proven true, Proverbs 30. This word of God that we have in our hands, there's no mistakes in it. And I know there's a lot of versions coming down the, and translations coming down the pike today, but the eternal word of God is always going to be here and it has everything we need in it. But this Bible is accurate. Don't let anybody say that it's a myth and it's gone out of date. I get excited when I think about the, the accuracy of this Bible. Let me give you an example. I think that our Father in heaven has a sense of humor. He says one place in Psalms, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh and he will have them in derision. That means God laughs when men is down here trying to do what they can to refute his purposes. <laughs> and so I think he allows things and one of them is what we call archeology. span Towards the end of the 18th century, it became very popular even though a lot of people has always been digging around. Archeology span became a scientific method to show the the historical accuracy of things on the planet. Well, little did these smart scientists realize that when archeology span came to the forefront, it wiped the smears and the sneers off of the unbelieving people when they took that shovel out and started digging things up. Let me give you an example. I came across one the other day and I really like this one. They finally have found at the base of the Tower of Babel 22 miles south of Baghdad is the Tower of Babel. They found the inscription at the base of the Tower of Babel. I wrote it down in my Bible and it says this. A former king built this tower but did not, but did not complete it because of the confusion of language. Wow, that's really amazing. That's always been in Genesis chapter 11. And yet now that smart people has dug it up, they all believe there must have been a Tower of Babel. The historical accuracy of this word is perfect, and I think God has allowed things like archaeology to come along. In fact, he says in Luke 19, he says, if my followers remain silent, even the rocks are going to cry out. And we see that happening today in archaeology. I love the one down there just south of Mount Carmel, and you can look down there and see where King Ahab, a wicked king, used to live in Israel. The Bible says in 1 Kings 22, 39, it says that he lived in a house of ivory. Men have laughed about that. They said, that's impossible. Well, guess what? They just dug it up. There was a solid house of ivory. I love the one in Jonah, chapter 3, verse 5, where it says, it's impossible, they say, that all of these people of Nineveh could have ever repented at any one moment of time. That's never happened anywhere on the planet. Well, they found a monument uncovered, written in a language, and it says that all the people of town came under one god Nebo at one moment in time. It's always been there in the Bible, and yet now they just uncovered it. And now people, for the first time, scientists, even the smart scientists of today, are beginning to realize and acknowledge that history did begin in the Tigris and Euphrates re region of this planet. Genesis 3, it's always been there. Now that's just the historical accuracy, and I love the, the, the different digs they're doing in, in um, different places in the Middle East because every one of them just proves the veracity and the perfection of this Bible. 
I also believe that it's accurate in its scientific accuracy, and I know this Bible is not a a scientific message to man, but I also believe that everything in this, all scientific statements are true. And in my feeble mind, I would just go on to say that science will never catch up to the beauty and the authority of this word. Let me give you some examples. It has always been in the Bible that this world is round. The Bible says in Job 26, he that hangs a circle of the earth upon nothing. That means that it's round. It's always been there in the Bible. Man used to think that the Bible is flat. If they would have just looked at the Word of God, it saved them a lot of time. Smart men used to think that uh, there was only 1,022 stars. A real smart man came along, along and counted 1,028. He became popular for a while. And then God does his, what I call, a sense of humor, and he says, okay, go ahead and invent the microscope and the telescope. And those two inventions were about 18 years apart, but they do the same thing. Man is doing everything he can to scrunch, scrunch, scrunch down, go down to quarks and photons and all these kind of things, trying to find out where they began. And they're going down into the infinity of space, trying to find out where they began, where God is, and he's been at both places. And someday they're going to come to the end. They're going to see him there smiling. You see? Man used to say there's 1,022 stars. Well, my Bible has always said in Genesis 15 that there's as many stars in the heavens as there are in the sands of the sea. Thank you, Hubble Telescope, because now we know that there's 100 billion galaxies, and every galaxy out there has hundreds of millions of stars, and yes, the stars are as innumerable as the sands of the seas. And by the way, the Bible says in Job that God has named every one of them. And then I think about the scientific accuracy of the laws of heredity. The Bible says in Genesis, it's always been there in the first chapter, all living things will be after their own kind. Sorry, evolution. It's always been here that all living things are going to be after their own kind. If I plant a cantaloupe, I'm not going to get an aardvark. I'm going to get a cantaloupe <laughs> and a human with a human. There is no, this nonsense and the lucrative, uh, it's stupid. Maybe that's a bad word, but folks, it is ridiculous to think. It takes more faith to believe the stupidity of evolution than you just read the Word and it says that God created. Then I think about smart men coming along with this thing called thermodynamics. That's a nice sounding word. Well, it's always been in the Bible. If you'd have read Psalm 102, it says that the world is waxing old like a garment. In other words, it's never going to go back to its useful state. That's the second law of thermodynamics. This world is waxing old like a garment. Someday the Bible said it's going to roll up together like a scroll. The Bible says then he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And I believe that one. But the scientific accuracy is just amazing. Men used to laugh because they'd read there in Job, and it says in the 28th chapter, he makes the weight in all of the winds. People said, boy, how dumb is that? Well, smart people now realize that a cubic feet of air weighs 1.23 ounces. It's always been in the Word of God. 
And it doesn't matter if you're talking about the hydrological cycles or meteorology of Ecclesiastes, chapter one, the winds go north, the winds go south, the oceans bring up the rain, and they go down through the rivers, and it all just in one continual cycle. It's always been in the Word of God. And then it even gets better. You cannot refute the historical accuracy. You cannot refute the scientific accuracy. And you'll never refute the prophetic accuracy of this divine inspired word of God. How embarrassing for the other major religions of the world in all of their great little writings. They're the best of them is one and a half percent true. That's embarrassing. When Muhammad said he's going to ride in Jerusalem, big deal. You can probably make that happen. But when you take something that was written over a span of 1,600 years, written by 40 different uh, authors, and all of these 6,180 prophecies, and 3,120 have become accurately true, then I would guess to say that the rest of the 3,000 are going to happen too. The Bible says, I call them messianic prophecies. That's a prophecy about the Messiah. There's 323 of them. He has fulfilled every one of them except for a few that when he comes back in Revelations. But folks, you can just take a few of those prophecies. Let me give you a few. You can take one in Isaiah where it says in Isaiah 7 that he's going to be born of a virgin. And then you look over Micah chapter 5. It says he's going to be born in this little town of all the towns on the planet. He's going to be born in the city of Bethlehem. Then he says in Zechariah chapter 9, he says he's going to ride into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. Not chilly, in Jerusalem on a donkey. He's in Zechariah chapter 11, he's going to be bought for 30 pieces of silver. It says in Isaiah chapter 53 that he's going to be despised and rejected of men. It happened, it happened, it happened, it happened. It says in Psalm 22 that they're going to cast lots uh, for his garment at the foot of Calvary, for his robe. It happened. And you can just take eight of those messianic prophecy and the probability of those eight being fulfilled by one individual is equivalent to taking the state of Texas, putting the whole state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars, finding one silver dollar, putting an X on it, mixing the whole state of Texas up and walking across that state and picking up that silver dollar. And folks, he fulfilled all of them. And that tells me in Luke 21 that when we see these kind of things begin to come to pass, we better sit up, pay attention, because he's just about ready to come back. The Bible says in Psalm 102 that when you see the king and the Lord building up Zion, that king shall soon appear in all of his glory. And we see those things beginning to come to pass. One of those signs is in Daniel chapter 12 where it says, In the last days men shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be greatly increased. It's in our lifetime that we get to see this happen. We have gone from the ox cart to the supersonic jets in our lifetime. Knowledge greatly increased. Some scientists predict that the halfway point of all human knowledge was 22 years ago. Do you see where we're at? Your cell phone that you have right now in your pocket is obsolete next week. That's how fast God has allowed the end of times. 
Then he prophesied something 2,750 years ago. It sends chills up my spine. I love it. He says that someday I'm going to bring back my people to my homeland. And they haven't had a homeland for 2,750 years. And on May 18th, 1948, they became a nation. And the same prophecy in Amos chapter 9 says, and when I bring them back into my homeland, no one will ever pull them out again. Folks, I'm going to trust what he says. And when we see these kind of prophetic statements coming, it's very, very exciting. The Bible says in Matthew 24, wars and rumors of wars. The Bible says in Luke 21, there would be pestilences and all of these kind of things happening on this planet. And entomologists will say today that for the first time in our history, the insects of the planet are outweighing humankind. And one of these days, we're going to see a real revival of a lot of stuff because of insects and famine. Well, it's exciting, but there's one verse that's not exciting. And it's not exciting to me because it reveals of where we're at in the church age right now. We're living in the last days. It is not the death rattle of Christianity. Rather, it's the birth pangs of Christian-fulfilled prophecy. But if you take Romans chapter 1 where it talks about sinners and how, what they do and how they live, and you go into the New Testament, you read 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's very sad. It says there that, know this, in the last days perilous times shall come, and men shall be lovers of their own selves, proud, disobedient, incontinent, blasphemers, having the form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. That's the church, folks. That's what we look like today. And the Bible says when you see us, Getting to this kind of a point, and the professing Christians of today know this, that the Son of Man is ready to come back. Twelve hours before he got on that cross, he said these words, I will come again. And I do believe the Word of God, it is accurate in everything that it says. I believe that God would also say, my Word is perfect because of its ability to give life. The Bible says in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The Bible says in Hebrews 4 and 12, it says, this word is alive and spiritual. The Bible says in Peter that this same word, which is alive and spirit, spiritual, it says, your word brings what? God is not alive, but you are born again by the word of God. You remember the gentleman up here in the green that had all those big words and the evolution thing and all that. It's not funny in this sense, and I was laughing too. I was sitting here and I remembered 25 years ago, my wife and I were sitting over at Monterey at Bubba Gump. And uh, we were eating Bubba Gump stuff. And, and I remember the, the waiter, a good looking dude with long hair and and very polite, and he noticed that we were reading the word or whatever we was doing, and he said, I don't believe any of that. I said, well, that's fine. I do. So he started telling me with these kind of words and uh, you know, philosophy, blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, why don't we get together? He said, I would love it. That's a really a polite guy. So we paid our bill, and, and I made, uh, his name was James Brown, and I made um, a meeting with him. And I says, I'll tell you what, I live in Modesto, you live in Monterey, I'll meet you at Casa de Fruta, 
and we will meet. And you come there next week, and we did. And I remember when I walked in, I got a, a, a section in the corner, and at that time, Casa de Fruta was owned by Christians, and, and uh, he seen me come in my Bible, and I said, hey, I got, I'm going to be talking to this guy, so let me have a corner table, big round one. And so we came in there, and here comes James Brown, loads of books, every Eastern religion, everything he had. And I told him, I said, okay, James, you take those back out of the car. We're going to use one book. And I'll fast forward the story. I became a very good friend with him. His father played for the Detroit Lions, uh, very athletic. He kind of ticked me off. We'd go out kayaking in Monterey, and he'd leave me in the dust. And, uh, but over the course of meeting with him, and God's Word did it. God's Word is powerful. So the thing I'm sharing with you today about the numbers and all that. He said, I can't refute that. It's true, isn't it? And he gave his heart to Christ. And the beauty of that is we stayed friends with him. He's in, uh, he, he works with the Ethiopian Jews in Israel today. But James Brown taught me lessons. I'm going to give you a quick one. You see, the Word of God transforms lives. And I thought I was really helping him. And, you know, and I, I gave him the Word. God did the saving. But then one day I remember going back there and I'd met him for a while and he says, Gordon, I said, well, James, what do you do? Just show me what you do over here. And he says, well, you follow me. So we go down this dark alley and I was starting to get scared. And we go down there and there are some funny and strange looking people down there. And he sat down on a crate and I sat down next to him and I was scared because there was bikers and, is there any bikers here? I'm sorry. But there was... <laughs> They were scary looking people. And I'll never forget all these people coming around. James, how are you doing? High-fiving him and everything. And he shared just a, a simple parable. And I'll never forget the day we walked out of that alley. He put a finger in my chest. And he says, Gordon, what's your problem? Everything you told me about the word, and you're sitting there scared, this word brought me life and courage and boldness. I learned a lesson that day. You see, the same word that saved me is the same word that saved him, and the same word that saved him brought that same word that I learned from him. That is the sustaining power of the Holy Ghost working in somebody that is willing just to pay attention and believe what it says. And for the first time I was confronted, do I go down scary alleys? It's probably not really my ministry, but folks, if I do, I'm not scared. I learned it from James Brown. You see, that is the beauty and the power of this word. It is alive and it is spiritual. And you may plant and you may do a few things, but it's God that gives the increase. And the same people that you bring to Christ may be the same people that teach you a lot of lessons. I learned from James Brown. I started following him around. And I loved it. Wow. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. That is the beauty of the power of life. And I remember on the top of the Altamont Pass, I was on a watermelon load and I gave my heart to Christ. I'll never forget that day because I knew it was... It was it's the real deal. He came into my life. Bible says in Romans, you confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart, you have salvation. 
That day, the Bible says in Peter, I had the incorruptible seed. The Bible says in Ephesians, it's never going to fade away. The Bible says in another place in Ephesians, from that day on, I fed the inner man. I've been a Christian for 45 years. 35 of those years, when I get up every morning, the first thing that goes in my uh, pocket is my Bible. The second thing is my billfold. Sometimes I get them mistaken. And when I put too much priority in my bank book over my Bible, I have nothing but problems. But it's the Bible that keeps me on an even keel that I don't have to worry so much about the temporal things of life that I can spend more time about the eternal things because that's where life is at. Why is all of these things written? The Bible says in John 20, 21, all of these things are written that you might believe and that believing you might have life through his son. That's the purpose of this book. That's his story. The scarlet thread of redemption started back in Genesis finds its completion when he comes again in Revelation. But there's four negatives I need to share with you. If you're sitting here today and you're not a believer, you're probably saying, hallelujah, let's get to this one. <laughs> but I want you then to pay close attention to these four negatives. First one, my word cannot be escaped. Wow. If you're sitting here today and you're if you're an alcoholic or you've had problems with drugs and you go back to wine, women, song, whatever you are trying to do to take you away from the Word of God and to take you away from Christian life, then you're trying to escape and you ain't going to escape the Word. Because my Bible says that this Word will judge every one of us. And my Bible says that the same thing in Romans chapter 1 is the same thing that's going to happen if you become a Christian. If you become a Christian, you come to the foot of the cross, you don't have to worry about escaping anymore because what does it say? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because I know it's the power of God unto salvation. There are people trying to escape the word of God. I want to give you a warning. You won't and you have no excuse. You're not going to stand at the great white throne someday and say, now wait a minute, God, you don't understand uh, my situation. Yes, he does. <laughs> because the Bible is very clear. You are judged and you're without excuse because of your conscience, because of creation, and because of the Word of God. If you've never read the Bible, you're still without excuse. You have your conscience and you have creation. You're without excuse. I have some friends that came to Christ because of creation up in the Sierras. Can't escape him. In fact, the one I really love, it says in Philippians 2 and 10, it says, someday every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ. If you don't bow in time, you'll bow sometime, but it's going to be the wrong time. And I think you would also say, my word cannot be equaled. Don't ever think that you're going to get so holy in your Christian walk. Well, you know what? I think I got it all figured out. I'm, I've kind of lived the Bible exactly right. No, you haven't. You never will. We're in, trapped in these earth suits. We sin. We're in the flesh. There's only one individual, Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Peter, there was no sin, no guile found in his mouth. It says the same thing in Hebrews. 
This word of God cannot be equaled. That does not mean that we just give up. It just means that we're not in perfection in our walk. You're perfectly forgiven when we confess our sins. He's faithful, but you're no, there is no perfection in your walk. The gavel came down on your salvation. That's a done deal. Eternity is settled in your hearts. But we got another problem. It's called pollution. That's your sanctified walk with the Lord. And folks, until we're feeding in direct proportion every day, feeding the inner man, because this is the living word and it's what keeps us in a life of holiness. Listen, he did not save you to be happy. You will never find that in the word of God. He saved you to be holy. And then the Bible says in John 13, and happy are you then if you do these things. I believe that my word cannot be excluded. He would say that. My word cannot be excluded. What do we mean by that? There are countries today that are doing everything they can to keep Christians out, to keep the word of God out. You can go to Indonesia. You can go to Saudi Arabia. They hate the word of God there. My wife has mentioned last night about a young girl that her uh, brother said, I'm going to kill you in two weeks. He just killed her in the streets because of her faith in Christianity and her desire for the word of God. But my Bible says, and your Bible says in Revelation 7 and 9, that every kindred, every nation, every tribe, every tongue will come to know Christ and has that opportunity. And someday we're going to get into heaven, and I can't wait. We're going to see Eskimos. I've, co- I've kind of always wanted to go see an Eskimo, <laughs> because I like Eskimo pies. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. But he says, my word cannot be excluded. I also believe that he says, my word cannot be embraced or comprehended. I mean fully comprehended. You can read this book and devour this book the rest of your life. But folks, I'm not telling you anything profound here, but you're not God. And your ways are not his ways and your thoughts are not his thoughts. He says that my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. It says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed, they belong to us. What's revealed? The Word of God. This is where we spend our time. Don't go out there like this gentleman in the green and try to figure all the philosophies of the equal, all that. You're not going to get anywhere. We have the authority of the Word of God, and it's everything we need. That's the next thing in the notes. You have everything you need for your life. Look at 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine Power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. We have everything we need. And right before, above that, fill in the blank where it says, and you can, the word of God can be enjoyed. If I have everything I need and I know what the word of God says, then I, the rest of my life, Psalm 119, it says, Oh, how I love your word or your law. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible, 119, 165, Great peace have they which love my word, and nothing will ever offend them. That's one of my favorite verses because I have to quote it all the time. If I get stuck in a traffic light, I start to get a little upset. 
And then I quote, great peace have they which love the word and nothing will ever bother them. And I slam on my brakes, quit honking my horn, and just enjoy the moment. You see, the Bible says, taste the Lord and see that he is good. We can enjoy him. We can enjoy him. And as we have that knowledge, and you have everything you need, folks, and if you're a Christian today, you have everything you need to go out and share with somebody else. Now, you can wave to your neighbors, and you can wave for 30 years, and you can wave them right into hell. But it's until we take the power of his word and we share it that makes a life transformation in someone else. And I guess if I would just take this word and say the Bible and, and all of this message to me, you could probably take all of this Bible from the Genesis to the Revelation and just sum it all up in the Gospels. And you could probably take the Gospels and sum it all up and put it in the Sermon on the Mount. And you could probably take the Sermon on the Mount and sum it all up and put it in the Beatitudes. And you could probably take the Beatitudes and sum it all up and put it in the first one because that's where we begin and that's where we end every day. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Until we have a complete unashamed dependence upon him, every moment we'll never see the beauty it is to lift him up each day. And I guess to me in my simplicity, I would just say I love this word. And this is what it means to me when I look at all of it in its entirety. And I close with that. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We have no excuse not to open this Bible every day and feed the inner man. And we know when we do. We love it. And I know there's times that we think it's dry and it's boring and mundane and monotonous, but Father, we know that the demonic forces of darkness are trying to trip us up. And Father, we just pray for everyone here that in their homes and in their quiet times that they will take this word of God and feed the inner man every day. We love to eat, Father, and thank you for giving us appetites. But we would pray that we would begin to pant after this Bible, the written word, the holy word, the live. I just love your word. Just thank you again through the power of the Holy Ghost as you give us this Bible that we may treasure it forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.